Good morning. It is always a blessing to be with you. Uh, Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for calling us together this morning to not only talk about you, but also to encounter you. I thank you for your presence, not only in this room, but also in our hearts. Please, Father, be with us as we listen carefully to your words to us this morning, ancient words from Scripture that still have the power to speak with new life into our lives, here and now. Open our hearts, God, to hear what it is you want us to hear. And when we hear what you have to say, give us the strength to obey, the courage to do what you ask. We pray this in the name of your eternally obedient Son, Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start reading together in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers. Peter doesn't mean that word to be an insult. The the unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers, fear God, honor the emperor. When the apostle Peter wrote these words, he was writing them to Christians who were living in an aggressively non-Christian culture. It was a culture built on the ideals of the Roman Empire. And those ideals were pretty straightforward. Things were the way they were supposed to be. The Roman Empire was supposed to be running things. The haves were supposed to rule over the have-nots. The rich and the famous were assumed to be the most important people alive, and everybody else was born into this world to support them, to serve them, to obey them. People who lived lives of forced physical labor were expected to serve in the shadows and to do it quietly and in peace. People who, who wanted to, to resist that were punished. The world was the, the way it was supposed to be. You were born into your social status and, and you were supposed to accept it. You weren't supposed to fight it. You weren't supposed to try to, to make something of yourself. The, the, the key passions 
that life was centered around, for those who had the resources to pursue them, were to, to chase after every moment you could of pleasure and leisure, to find ways to keep building more and more financial resources so that you could have some sense of security both now and into the future. You wouldn't have to worry. You wouldn't have to, to struggle. And if after all of that, the pursuits of of pleasure and leisure and having more than enough for yourself, you wanted to share something with somebody else, that was fine, but that was always up to you. You were never pressured, you were never pushed, you were never forced to share because what was yours belonged to you and you alone. You you weren't made to, to give any of that away. These were the basic ideals of the Roman Empire. And while there are differences to be sure, it is amazing to me how little has changed in 2,000 years when it comes to the predominant culture of the world, the values of the world that we live in. Because as far as I can tell, the people in our world who have all this world has to offer, they are described, they are named by the world as the winners, as those who are the most important. And yet, Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, he shows the watching world a different way. Uh, A way that is so different, that it's so countercultural, that nobody even knows what to do with it, at least not at first. Jesus comes and and he says, you know what, life, it's not about getting, it's about giving. And when you have a position of authority, it's, it's not a position that you're supposed to use for yourself to, to get even farther ahead. But you should be always using a position of influence or authority to help others, especially those who can't help themselves. Jesus says, you know, you, you shouldn't spend all of your time trying to develop strategies to force your way and to to make sure to engineer the exact outcome that you want to, to prove your point to all of the people around you. You should be doing your best to use the, the power, the influence that you have to make peace with the people around you. Jesus ends up basically saying and demonstrating in his life that life isn't about you, right? That, that, that true life isn't about you and, and what you want, your, your rights, your desires, but, but true life can only be found when we live for the sake of others, when, when we, we try to protect their rights, when we try to help realize their dreams. Not just any dream, but the dream of having a good and decent life. A life where they're not afraid, a life where they are in relationships and in community that bless them. And it's not that that we were hoping that Jesus was right. I I know that this radically other-centered way of life, it feels not only counter-cultural for us, but it feels anti-intuitive. It doesn't quite make sense to us. And and it's not as if we're, we're hoping that Jesus was guessing that he was right. We know that he's right. We know that he's right because Jesus lives this way and, and then he dies, but then his story doesn't end there because God isn't about to let this selfless way of life end in death. In fact, it is the only way of life that doesn't end in death. And so on Easter, 
morning. It's, it's not just a story that makes us feel good. It's a story that, that helps us see the truth. And that is that this other-centered life, it is our only hope that can be stronger than death. It, it is our only hope for, for a life that doesn't end. And if we're going to participate in that, if, if, if we're going to, to understand that at, at the deepest places of who we are, we're, we're going to have to do more than just study it. We're going to have to do more than, than focus on it sometimes or think about it or define it or describe it. We're actually going to have to recalibrate our daily decisions in our lives so that our, our lives become the shape of Jesus' life, that his values shape not what we say we care about, but actually shape what we care about. Right? And it's difficult, more than we can describe, because the world isn't going along with the program. It, it isn't buying into this. There are always other people, people who look like the haves, the, the successes, the winners, that say to us, you don't know what you're doing. You, you're confused. This isn't the way the world works. And so time after time, we have to come back to the story of Jesus, and we have to remember, he's not just guessing. He was right. True life is found. In this upside down way of life that, that nobody else quite, quite understands. And, and so we have to, we have to come to this place where we really do insist that on our own, we can't possibly head in the right direction, right? That Jesus shows us, reveals to us that it's really the, that the way we think is up is down and down is up. Or the way Jesus says it himself is in his kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. Now, it's one thing to, to think about Jesus' way of life. It's something else entirely to start to live Jesus' way of life. The second that that happens, the second you and I start to do that, well, we're running into all kinds of people who just don't understand Right? They, they don't get it. They don't get us. They don't get why anybody would possibly want to live that, that differently. Right? It seems too hard. It seems like there aren't enough immediate rewards. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. And, and it doesn't take long when you, you're constantly surrounded by people that don't understand you to start to feel like, like you, you're strange. You're, you're weird. You're, you're a social misfit. You're an outcast. This is the kind of, of rejection, the kind of social tension that, that the Christians who first received Peter's letter, they, they had to face every single day. No one around them who wasn't a Christian understood them. No one around them who wasn't a Christian wanted the same things that they wanted. No one around them who wasn't a Christian was ever going to stand up for them. And you start living that way, it doesn't take long before you feel alone. And you feel defensive. You feel, you feel stuck on the outside looking in. The words that Peter uses to talk about that, it, it demonstrates that that's exactly what these, these Christians are going through. They feel like foreigners and exiles. They, they feel like, like aliens and strangers. And I can't help but think that those early Christians quickly got to the place, day after day of feeling like that, that they started to... To see the world a certain way, or at least they had to be tempted to, right? To, to feel like it was them against everybody else. It was them against the world. 
I mean, I know that if I was being persecuted on a, on a daily basis for my faith, it wouldn't take me long to start seeing the whole world as us versus them. We're right. They're wrong. We're good. They're bad. And if you're not with us, you're with them. This kind of, of drawing sides, this, this kind of creating categories to keep us separate from all others, this kind of label making and name calling, it never works out the way we hope it will. I, I think that we keep hoping that if we keep all the social categories crystal clear, the confusion will go away. And once the confusion goes away, well, then the conflicts will stop. The fighting will stop. The thing is, in our world, crystal clear categories, they, they actually wind up feeding the fires of division and conflict and violence. I mean, how well are the Democrats and the Republicans getting along right now? It certainly isn't because we're mixing them up. We can't tell them apart. And, and then you look into extreme situations in our world, right? On one hand, you've got these extreme Islamist groups who believe that, that the best way to convert the world is to, to kill people that don't believe the way they do. But, but then on the other side of the, the, the spectrum, you've got extreme Groups that call themselves Christians, that, that go to U.S. soldiers' funerals and hold up signs that condemn those soldiers to hell. And we shake our heads because we look at those extreme ends of the spectrum and we think, we don't have anything to do with any of that. But see, it turns out it's not just extremists who fall into this us-versus-them mindset. It's ordinary, run-of-the-mill people, too. Traditional marriage versus same-sex marriage, pro-life versus pro-choice, Second Amendment defenders versus gun control advocates. Have you heard a little bit about that this week? Small government versus large government, Fox News versus MSNBC, those who vaccinate versus those who don't, church buildings versus mosques, the Texas Rangers versus the San Francisco Giants. Us versus them. Our world isn't suffering from a lack of clear categories, brothers and sisters. Our world is dying from too many clear categories between which nobody can seem to find common ground. As Christian author Miroslav Wolf puts it, our world is broken in large part because we tend to think that we have to push others away and keep them at a distance. We have to to close ourselves off to keep ourselves pure from what we see as their wrong ideas and ways. This push and pull of keeping others at arm's length soon leads to resentment and resentment always eventually leads to aggressive behavior. I have found that Wolf is right. And so have you. And if there's anything that Jesus models for us, it's that you can't change the world by violently fighting it. You change the world by living so differently that people can't ignore us and our different way of life, no matter how hard they try. That's what... Peter's talking about in chapter 2 verse 15 where he says it's God's will that it's by doing good that you would convince right the, the ignorant foolish people right the people who don't understand the people who don't get it 
You're not going to actually win them by winning some sort of argument with them or attacking them. You're, you're going to win them. You're going to change them. You're going to reach them, not by insisting that you're right, but by being good. That's how you convince people who don't get it. You're good. In 1 Peter, we find that, that our spiritual battle is never really between us and them, whoever them happens to be. Right? I'll, I'll let you decide. You know, what, what's that group? What's that social class of people that make you the most uncomfortable to have to be around? It, it doesn't matter who that is. It, it's not really between us and them. Our true spiritual battle is between us and us. To be more precise, our, our battle is waged between the old us and the new us. The me I used to be and the me Jesus is now calling me to be. That's where the battle is raging, brothers and sisters. It's where we either make up or lose ground. In the lightness and the darkness that is fighting inside of our own hearts. Peter says in chapter 2 verse 11. That the only way we can be who God calls us to be. Is to face and deal with the desires that war against our souls. Not to fight the people around us. But to fight the feelings inside of us. This is where, this is where true transformation always happens it's where it always starts we know that we just tend to forget it every self-confessed addict i've ever known knows this truth you can't undergo lasting change by by changing your behavior alone you have to at some point work on the level of desire the inner need that you have for the wrong thing that, that soul deep desire you have for something that you want more than anything else that will utterly destroy you if you get it. You and I don't tend to think of ourselves as addicts and we don't like to think of ourselves as addicts. But we all have addictions to things that will utterly destroy us if we let them. There are approval addicts, people who need other people to tell them that they're valued and loved for them to feel like they matter at all. There are power addicts, people who, who need to control others and need to control outcome, but it doesn't matter how much control they have, it's never enough. There are stuff addicts, right? People who, who knew, need, feel, I mean, like they desperately need the newest and the best stuff, and yet they find out that the world's always creating newer and newer stuff, and it's never enough. Chaos addicts, people who, who seem to actually thrive with all the attention they get when their own lives are falling apart. Accomplishment addicts, people who, who need to see the results of their work, to be recognized for it, to be rewarded for it. There are gossip addicts, people who don't seem to be happy unless they're able to be saying negative things about other people or listening to other people say negative things about other people. Self-obsession addicts, people who can always find a way to turn any situation into something that's about them, even when it's not about them. Judgment addicts, people who are constantly measuring and weighing everybody else in their lives and finding new ways to make sure that they can feel justified in saying that those other people are coming up short. There are all kinds of addicts. Everyone in this room is, is addicted to at least one desire that has the power to destroy us. 
And that power is what scripture consistently calls sin. So what do we do? Well, we have to get to the place where we're not so solely focused on managing our outward behavior. And we have to get deeper than that. We have to start working harder than, than I think we ever have before on the broken, sinful desires we have that sometimes we nurture, that sometimes we protect from others. We try to hide it. We keep it in our lives anyway. Evil desires that lead to behaviors that we know have absolutely nothing to do with the selfless example of Jesus Christ. You know what those evil desires are that are waging in your soul. And if you don't know what those evil desires are, then your first struggle is to get to know what those evil desires are. To be honest, to give names to what it is that's driving you that you know doesn't come from God. And and we are not, none of us, we're not alone in this inner battle. We have the power and the presence of God in our lives. We have our brothers and sisters in this faith community in our lives. But the reality is, each of us, even though we're in this together, you as an individual, you have to figure out, sift your own soul to to find out where the, the battle lines have to be drawn. Where are you fighting? Where are you struggling? The Apostle Peter begins by asking us to consider. Right? I mean, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not, well, I'm not sure where to start. Peter has a place to start. He wants us to, to consider if we're addicted to being important. To getting our own way. To not only being right, but being regarded as right. Have you ever felt those feelings before? You ever had those desires before? What, what's Peter's response to this? What's, what's his antidote to this? Well, he says, instead of wanting, longing, desiring to be important and to not only be right, but to be regarded as right, you need to develop inside of you a spirit of submission. For God's sake, he says, you need to learn to, to make the, the counterculture, I mean, everything in our world tells us not to submit ever. And you've got to make the choice to want something other than the world tells you to want. Something, something unlike anything that any unbeliever would ever say, this is something that I want shaping my life. Submission is, is one of those words we just run from. Peter's telling us to run towards it. To cultivate a longing in us to learn how to show this deep respect. How to see people through the lens of a deep respect that they are a dearly loved child of God. That there's someone who matters. That there's someone who who need to be listened to and cared for and cared about. I mean, when you read all of of chapter 2 of of 1 Peter, you find that he's trying to make it clear to them that this idea that there's a social pyramid, that there's the haves and the have-nots, it's all just imaginary. It doesn't really exist. Nobody's actually more valuable than anybody else because God's the one who says that every single one of us is worth the, the life of his son. We don't get to set one another's value. It's not up for debate. And so he says what you need to figure out how to do is respect everybody. 
for who they are. Not for their, their accolades and their accomplishments or if they agree with you all the time or if they, they do all the things you want them to do. Love them for who they are. They are God's child. They are God's son and daughter. Show them the respect that a child of God deserves. Most Christians I know really do try to show respect to one another. We really do. But I think it's when we, we find what feels like a justifiable reason to not show someone respect, that we give ourselves a free pass to, to feed our sinful addiction to being important and getting our own way. Since everyone alive that I'm aware of, other than Jesus Christ, has made a mistake once or twice, all it really takes is the question of how well we know each other before we can find at least one reason to not have to show one another respect. Right? Because there's at least one thing you've done at some point in your life. If I know you pretty well, I could point to that and say, okay, it's a good person, but, you know, there's this one time. So I'm not quite sure that I have to have to listen to him. I, I like her, but, but back five years ago, she said this one thing to me, and I, I don't know. I mean, you can't, you can't expect me to, to want to be around her, right? We, we find one thing that's wrong, and, and then it's, it's harder for us to, to come to the place where we're, we're going to treat them the way Peter says, look, you, you need to not just act this way, you need to be trying to develop a longing to see one another this way. And when he says respect the emperor, honor the emperor, He's talking about Nero, who was one of the worst emperors in the history of the Roman Empire, which if you know anything about emperors of the Roman Empire, that's, that's pretty impressive in a really bad way. Yet he's, he's a child of God. Respect the emperor. See the emperor a certain way. See the emperor the way God does. That doesn't mean ignoring the places in the emperor that are broken or or sinful, but it means seeing more than that. And so we 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 find ways where we we don't have to really treat one another with the kind of respect that Peter's talking about. You really want to get uncomfortable? Let's start talking about how Christian people uh, treat those who they ask to lead us. I would love to say that Christian people respect authority much better than non-Christian people do. I have not seen the evidence to support that claim. I just haven't. I'm going to be blunt with you. You want to be bad-mouthed to your face and behind your back in a church? Just sign up for an official role of leadership and wait. I'm serious. Become a shepherd and see how long it takes. Before people start talking about you. It seems to me that we are far less interested in following the people we ask to lead us than we are in criticizing those we've asked to lead us and how they're trying to lead us. There's no Christ in any of that. There's no Christ in any of that. There's a lot of American democracy in that. And I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure that model works all, all, all of the, the ways that we want it to. I think it creates sides. 
I think it creates winners and losers. I think it creates accusations. I think it creates situations where you don't really listen to somebody else because you've already labeled them and you don't have to listen to somebody else. Because you, you think you know who they are because you think you know how they think. Brothers and sisters, when Peter starts and he says, I don't know, you know, we all have sinful desires. I don't think he's picking submission at random. I think it is almost always something that we struggle with. Because we are addicted to being not only right, but treated as if we're right. Treated as if what we want is what everybody else will submit to. See, we like the idea of submission as long as it's you and it's never me. But when it's mutual submission, suddenly it gets really difficult. It gets difficult for any of us to admit it. It gets difficult for any of us to really find a way forward. When Peter starts at this place of developing a desire for submission, he is starting at a place that in my life, it's a point of personal weakness. I struggle to submit in my spirit and in my actions. I really do, especially if I think I know a better way. And I almost always think I know a better way. I do. I'm sorry. I wish I had a different sin struggle you were more comfortable with, but this is one of them. And, and what I find is that I realize in these moments where I have a choice to make in my heart of how I see somebody else and then how I treat them, see them with respect, treat them with respect. It's in those moments I realize how well I'm faithfully following the example of Jesus or I'm simply wanting to benefit from what Jesus did and I have no real interest in following the example of what Jesus did. It's little things like when Lauren gets really excited uh, about cleaning up all the things in the house we haven't been using much and I'm taking the garbage out for the third time that day. It's not helpful to point out I've already taken out the garbage twice. Right? No whining. Just do it. There's, there's a lot of life wisdom there that doesn't have anything to do with scripture. But I'm telling you, that's what Peter's talking about. Right When me and my dad are traveling and he decides that he knows a better way to get from the hotel to the restaurant and I know that I know a better way. I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to let us take too long to get there and make a couple of wrong turns and I'm not going to point it out. Right? Peter says that, that I'm going to find a way as a minister in this church to submit to the shepherds of this church, even if I think I've, I've got some strategy that we absolutely need to try, or I have some, some idea that we absolutely need to try to, to chase after, that if collectively the shepherds pray about it and they think about it and they say, this is what we believe God is leading us to do, if that doesn't line up with what I personally think, Peter says, develop the spirit of submission. Don't pout. Don't keep score. Follow Jesus. And when I think about the leaders of our city and our state and our nation, it does me no good to spend a bunch of time spouting words one way or the other of support or or not supporting, right? It, It doesn't matter how much I talk about them. I need to be talking to God about them. Asking for God to guide them and lead them regardless of how I happen to feel about them at any given moment. 
The spirit of submission. It's so difficult and yet it's. It's a place all of us, I think, know this, this struggle that Peter's talking about because we're addicted to getting our own way. We're addicted to, to other people listening to us and, and doing what we're saying. And Peter, Peter wants us to hear the voice of God. In the midst of all of that ambition and all of that desire for things that aren't really good, he wants us to, to hear the voice of God saying, Follow Jesus. Follow the example that he set for you. Follow in his footsteps. You keep saying that he showed you the best way to live, but then you demonstrate in how you live that you think you know a better way. Submit. Submit to the way of Christ. This life that's about other people, this life that's about their rights and their dreams, not my rights and my dreams. Do we really trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about? Do we really trust enough to not just say we believe it, but to prove we believe it through how we live? I've got to come to that decision myself. You're going to have to come to that decision yourself. But everybody in our lives is going to know which decision we've made. We're going to sing now together. And as we do, some of our shepherds and their their spouses will be uh, waiting just outside of these double doors to pray with you, to talk with you, uh, to to be community for you. So if you have any, any concerns at all, any questions about our church family, if you're new this morning and you'd like to get to know a few of us, Please, whatever it is that you need help with, go to them as together we stand and sing.